it's becoming clear with the so-called psychedelic renaissance, this renewed interest in the benefits that psychedelics might bring, that the setting is key, not just the personal setting in which the individual might take a psychedelic, but the cultural setting too. A number of the best commentators on psychedelics now are saying that in a way, it's not so much the trip that matters, that kind of thing happens. It's more whether there's the cultural receptivity to absorb, to process, to integrate, to bring into everyday life those things which people experience and have unveiled to them on trips. It's going to be necessary to address these things if the psychedelic renaissance now is not just to repeat what happened in the 60s. And I think William Blake is a key figure in this. He's already much loved in the psychedelic community because of course he coined the expression that Huxley made so famous, cleansing the doors of perception. But Blake is not so widely known as the penetrating thinker that he was about the problems of his times, which are also the problems of our times, and which the vision that opens up when the doors of perception are cleansed can heal. He does so by diagnosing the problems of his times, but in that very diagnosis, opening up the new possibilities which our times need now as well. He wrote to change minds and cultures. And what's striking is the ways in which he did so mirror the psychedelic experience. I'm not incidentally much concerned about whether Blake did or did not take psychedelics. I suspect he didn't. He had an expansive, fluid, intimate enough relationship with the imagination already. But nonetheless, people talk about anxiety being lessened, about being able to forgive themselves. They talk about directly knowing what they previously had just trusted or intimated. They talk about trusting the imagination as not just fanciful, but speaking truth to them. They talk about time changing, becoming malleable, realising that clock time is not fixed. They talk about working with what seem like opposites or contraries within them, not just to integrate different aspects of themselves, but to see how life is transcended as a result. They talk about embracing suffering rather than being fearful of it or trying to resist it because they perceive that through suffering that transformation occurs. And similarly with death, anxiety around death, fear of death can be transformed because it's seen as a portal now to more life and the trip often being described as a kind of little death. They see the divine, the divine known not as power, but as love that draws them, that speaks to them, that integrates with them. It's about being able to say yes to life. And considering Blake's work then in the light of these reports and increasingly results from the scientific study of psychedelics, it seems to me that seven key facets of Blake's work can be brought alongside these realisations to help shape the cultural renaissance that will be needed to accompany 
and bed down the psychedelic renaissance. These would be seeing the imagination as a key human faculty that bears reality to us. We are homo imaginalis, seeing our freedom not so much as an external thing, but as an attitude that can be cultivated within. We can always lean towards novelty and then that novelty appears in the world around us. We have the freedom to do that. Recognising that consciousness or subjectivity is basic. People on psychedelics recognise that agency is all around. And so this would suggest some kind of idealist philosophy. Seeing fourthly that healing is not just a private affair, but is a collective undertaking. Healing the culture is quite as important as trying to bring healing to individuals. Then knowing death as a portal rather than as a final end. And then also knowing that morality is eclipsed by vision. People on trips will report facing themselves or opening the door or descending the ladder, drawn by a vision of a wider reality that awaits them. The oughts dissolve into a can. And then seventh would be this question of time and how it becomes malleable. Blake illustrated his thoughts, wrote them in great poems. And so let me consider these seven facets accompanied by some of Blake's trippy or should I say visionary images and also use some of his verse to evoke them as much as try to describe them. First then, the question of the imagination. Blake truly loathed the mechanistic account of the imagination that he saw dominating in his day. He called it a bounded cosmos and anything that's bounded by we human beings comes to be loathed by us because within us is this imagination that longs to know the unbounded, that which calls us and to which we're called. He describes this in his poem Milton, one of his epic poems where he writes, this is a false body, an incrustation over my immortal spirit, a selfhood which must be put off and annihilated always to cleanse the face of my spirit by self-examination, to bathe in the waters of life, to wash, to wash off the not human. I come in self-annihilation and the grandeur of inspiration to cast off rational demonstration by faith in the saviour, to cast off the ra rotten rags of memory by inspiration to cast off Bacon, Newton and Locke from Albion's covering, to take off his filthy garments and clothe him with imagination, to cast aside from poetry all that is not inspiration. And when that happens, when the imagination is put on, is revealed because the false garments of reason that would deny imagination, call it mere fantasy, when that happens, Blake saw opening up new possibilities, the bounded become, becomes unbounded once again. And he writes in another of his epic poems, Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion, in new expanses, creating exemplars of memory and of intellect, creating space, creating time according to the wonders divine of human imagination throughout all the three regions immense of childhood, manhood, and of old age. 
He's saying that all parts of human life, when connected to the imagination, expand our experience. We don't have to live just from memory anymore, that which has happened in the past that may well haunt us, but can step into new possibilities of space and time according to the wonders of the divine human imagination. It links us to the spirits, to the deities, to the divine that pulses around us is always the source of our life and would speak to us once again. So this would be the first principle. Psychedelics supercharges, if you like, the value of the imagination. It tells us once more about it leads us into life. The second aspect of the cultural renaissance which might support the psychedelic has to do with freedom and this is primarily relearning that freedom is not ultimately an objective facet that we can lay claim to, calculated in rules, put down in rights, but primarily is subjective. When we can know the freedom that overcomes the mind-forged manacles, then the manifestations of freedom in law and rights can take shape. So first, how Blake saw freedom being constrained by the mind-forged manacles. Here's his poem, The Garden of Love. I went to the Garden of Love and saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green and the gates of the chapel were shut and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the Garden of Love that so many sweet flowers bore and I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be and priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. The priests in their black gowns have become all those who would live life according to preset rules, according to the efficiencies of bureaucracy. But the diagnosis of the problem is always accompanied by the intimations of expanse in Blake, and so he writes about freedom returned to its original soil as the attitude within us. For example, he says, if the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. We must be free to make our mistakes and so know through our mistakes of how to live well. He also writes, do be my enemy for friendship's sake. This is the freedom even to turn to those that seem to oppose us so that we can learn from them. The shadow can speak to us of freedom because we can absorb more of life. This possibility of freedom becomes more and more connected with forgiveness, particularly in Blake's later work. He sees that we need to be able to constantly forgive ourselves of our mistakes so that we can turn to the more that at first we might misunderstand as the shadow and then absorb that and so that that becomes the freedom that inwardly we know as the fullness of life. And so he writes in Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion, I know of no other Christianity and no other gospel, no other any kind of good news than the liberty both of body and mind to exercise the divine arts of imagination. And notice that it's not just about imagining anything, it's the divine imagination that counts, that which directs us towards the expansive more, that which we know as our freedom. So the second principle, valuing inner over outer manifestations of freedom. 
and which is known in the psychedelic experience as the mind forge manacles releasing guilt and shame being overcome and so the freedom to step into more of life again. A third principle that the culture would need to absorb the psychedelic experience, I think, is recognising that subjectivity is fundamental, that consciousness is the wellspring of all that we otherwise know materially and in other manifestations of life. Again, Blake begins with a diagnosis of our times. He has Albion, one of his figures who becomes a kind of every person, being very wary of the subjective, longing for the objective, being very wary of consciousness, thinking it must be the product of material reality. And so he has Albion say, subjectivity is a phantom of the overheated brain. He is anticipating the neuroscience of our times, which would tell us that the brain generates consciousness or is an epiphenomenon of neural working. Noting too, of course, that in the psychedelic renaissance, we must be wary of the neuroscience taking over as if it can somehow prove subjectivity. That's to get it the wrong way round. Because what Blake actually saw was that we who dwell on earth can do nothing of ourselves. Everything is conducted by spirits, no less than digestion or sleep. We in our embodied existence are channeling, are showing, are revealing the spirited, subjective, conscious base of all reality. This idealism which he shows in his poetry where places and hills and seas and planets, the stars themselves are all personalities engaged in this wonderful dance of life. And Blake's point is that with this awareness of the nature of all things, science then finds its proper place and so he can write that when the innumerable chariots of the Almighty appear in heaven, the life that is the basis of all things is known, Bacon and Newton and Locke appear alongside Milton, Shakespeare and Chaucer as well. The one relates and serves the other, and so again there's an expansion of life. Blake continues, he says, All human forms identified, even tree, metal, earth and stone, we can know all things as sharing in the consciousness that we so, we so powerfully know. So that would be the third principle, that subjectivity or idealism returns to the culture. Mentation is seen as the basic stuff of existence from which all things spring. The fourth element that I think Blake points us towards is that healing must be to do with the collective, not just a private experience. We need a cultural healing to bring about the full potential of the healing personally that psychedelics seems to be promising. Again, the fallen character Albion expresses the futile attempt to heal solely in a private, enclosed world when he refuses the call to awake from his locked-in syndrome. Awake, awake, O sleeper of the land of shadows. Wake, expand. I am in you and you in me, mutual in love divine. Weep at thy soul's disease, he's told, but he refuses to, displaying his soul's disease, and says, seeking to keep my soul a victim to thy love, which binds man, the enemy of man, into deceitful friendships. Jerusalem is not... Her daughters are indefinite, 
By demonstration, man alone can live and not by faith. My mountains are my own and I will keep them to myself. He refuses to open up and so discover the life in the collective and find his soul's healing. Though, again, following the diagnosis comes the awakening because indeed at the end of the great poem, Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion, when Albion awakes, he sees that in fact he does share the spirit of all things. Jerusalem is real and her daughters are definite as well and so his soul's isolation is healed. Albion said, O Lord, what can I do? My selfhood cruel marches against thee. But this time he hears what he must do. Awake, awake, Jerusalem, O lovely emanation of Albion. Awake and o'erspread all nations as in ancient time. For lo, the night of death is past and the eternal day appears upon our hills. Awake, Jerusalem, and come away. The life is returning to all things. And Albion replies back and says, did I sleep? amidst danger to friends. O oh, my cities and countries, do you sleep? Rouse up, rouse up. The whole of society, the whole of culture can capture this imagination and bring about the soul's healing, not just for Albion, but for all things. The fourth principle that healing is cultural, social and spiritual as much as it is personal. You could even go so far as to say that until all are healed, not one person is fully healed. The fifth facet moves on from this and considers the nature of death and this possibility that death is a portal. Now, Blake was very aware that what he called eternal death seems to be setting into the culture of his times and has embedded in ours the eternal death. They're referring to the perception that death is, in fact, the final end. And he expresses it again in the figure of Albion, who believes He's become caught in eternal death. Oh, what avail the loves and tears of Beulah's lovely daughters? They hold the immortal form in gentle bands and tender tears, but all within is opened up into the deeps of enthuthon benithon. That's one of his phrases for the materialist physical frame that people feel they're caught in. A dark and unknown night, indefinite, unmeasurable, without end, abstract philosophy warring in enmity against imagination. This is the belief that we will end in death. But the poem also realises that whilst eternal death is abroad, all tremendous, unfathomable, non-ends of death, the nothing of death, can be seen in regenerations terrific. And this happens when Albion throws himself into the furnaces of affliction, into that which seems so fearful, and realises that all becomes vision, that that eternal death was a dream, because the furnaces become fountains of living waters flowing with the humanity divine. And all the cities of Albion rose from their slumbers, and all the daughters and sons of Albion on soft clouds waking from sleep, soon all around remote, the heavens burnt with flaming fires. There's an awaking, there's a regeneration that is recognised when death becomes the portal. In little ways, as well as in tremendous final ways, Blake remarks that every kindness to another is a little death. We can know this stepping outside of ourselves in every act of life, as well as the psychedelic experience and at the end. Self-annihilation, what he calls self-annihilation, becomes key. And this isn't so much ego dissolution 
as embracing that which would seem to limit us and so putting to death that which would confine us, the bounded, and so stepping into the unbounded. Death, this huge subject, the eternal death that's gripped our culture so much, Blake directs head on and so can help expand the psychedelic perception that we need to lose the fear of death by re-understanding it as a portal to more life. The sixth facet extends this in another way and it's the valuing of vision over morality. The psychedelic experience often invites the opening of the door, the turning to that which seems difficult, the overcoming of that which would be judged. And this is about, in Blake's language, holding to the vision of the good, beautiful and true. Now, Blake calls the moral rule the waste of moral law. O human imagination, O divine body, I have crucified, I have turned my back upon thee into the wastes of moral law. He has an analysis of morality that can become like an abstraction and created by the reasoning power rather than known through the imagination as the reality that flows through us. It's why he remarks, I must create a system or be enslaved by another man's. He realised that the waste of the moral law were pinning people down, closing off the vision that can lead to the true perception of the good, beautiful and true. And he thought that that vision can be returned by embracing our humanity in all its completeness, the vices as much as the virtues, because they will all be transformed by own humanity, learn to adore, he says, and the reason is, is because our humanity in its fullest is the divine vision and we need to relearn and see that. For man is love as God is love, he says in the divine imagination, nor can man exist but by brotherhood. And the figure of loss is the figure in Blake that often holds on to this divine vision, even though he lives in times of trouble loss unwearied, labouring and weeping. Therefore, the sons of Eden praise Orthona's spectre in songs because he kept the divine vision in time of trouble. And loss is the great inspiration for Blake, perhaps even Blake in his own poems. And he says, I rest not from my great task to open the eternal worlds, to open the immortal eyes of man inwards into the worlds of thought, into eternity, ever expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. O Saviour, pour upon me thy spirit of meekness and love, annihilate the selfhood in me, be thou my life. It's about forgiveness then as well, because by being forgiven we can step into more, we can hold to the vision and not be pinned down by the wastes of the moral law. O bow of mercy and loving kindness, Blake continues, laying open the hidden heart in wars of mutual benevolence, wars of love. So this would be the sixth facet that Blake would highlight for us in our times. Vision over moral rules that otherwise waste life. We need to reimagine that and the psychedelic renaissance might be a seed that can grow into this sense of life once more. And it leads to the seventh, the idea that time can be known as malleable. First, again, Blake's diagnosis of the mechanical vision of time that he saw bedding down in his own age and has become so dominant in ours. 
He thought that the experience of mechanical linear time would make us prisoners of death, as he puts it. It's Blake, Newton and Locke in their devilish forms, sheathing us in dismal steel. Their terrors hang like iron scourges over Albion, Blake continues. Reasonings like vast serpents enfold around my limbs, bruising my minute articulation. I turn my eyes to the schools and universities of Europe and there behold the loom of Locke, whose woof rages dire, washed by the water wheels of Newton. Black the cloth in heavy wreaths folds over every nation. Cruel works, oh many wheels I view, wheel without wheel, with cogs tyrannic, moving by compulsion each other, not as those in Eden, which wheel within wheel in freedom revolve in harmony and peace. That's the freedom, not of clock time, but of kairos time, of imaginative time. And so time's transformation is intimated even in his dark perception of how time can constrain us. And it comes about particularly by paying attention to the particularities, the minute particularities of life and seeing the general as alive in them, not the other way round. The most famous expression of this perhaps is Blake's auguries of innocence lines where he writes to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. The grain of sand releases the world, the wildflower shows heaven. In your palm, in the palm of your hands, the finite space can be sensed, the infinite, and similarly in the hour when the wheels turn freely in peace and harmony, eternity reveals itself once more. And in some of the most amazing poetic lines, Blake seeks to evoke this for us, contract or expand space at will, or if we raise ourselves upon the chariots of the morning, contracting or expanding time, he says. Every word and every character was human according to the expansion or contraction, the translucence or opaqueness of nervous fibres, such was the variation of time and space, which vary according to the organs of perception vary, and they walked to and fro in eternity as one man, reflecting each in each and clearly seen and seeing according to fitness and order. There's this reflexive, reflective, exchanging, diaphanous experience of time that opens up. And so we can walk in time even as we walk in eternity. Something of the psychedelic experience can be suggested there that can be brought into cultural experience. You might say that we've learned to see the world the wrong way round and that, as some have found, psychedelics can help right that wrong and so open up reality once again. I act with benevolence and virtue and get murdered time after time, Blake says in another point. You accumulate particulars and murder by analysing that you may take the aggregate and you call the aggregate moral law and you call that swelled and bloated form a minute particular but general forms have their vitality in particulars, and every particular is a man, a divine member of the divine Jesus. That suggests other facets that no doubt a cultural renaissance would need prayer and praise too. Blake is clear that God or Jesus or Jerusalem, as he also puts the spirit, is reaching to us even as we reach out to it always at work in the imagination, in our freedom, in consciousness, in death, in vision. But he provides in these facets a understanding that 
the perceptual transformation of the psychedelic experience can bed down into, can expand, can grow into a cultural setting as much as a personal setting that releases this vision. It's not, you might say, Blake tells us about psychedelics alone that will change the world or as if everyone should take mushrooms. It's about maximising the impact of these new experiences by focusing on the cultural dimension as well, linking to others who share that cultural renaissance already. And Blake is no small part of that. A psychedelic culture, you might say, is not one infatuated with the drugs, but it's one that knows the love of life again. It's an inward turn where all is found. And I think these seven facets are key. Treating imagination as truth-bearing and ourselves as homo imaginalis, able to ride that vision into reality. Having the freedom to do so inwardly as much as outwardly. Sensing again that consciousness or subjectivity is basic. Knowing that healing is a collective undertaking as much as one that's private. Understanding that death can be passed through, the fear can be overcome and it can be known as a portal. Valuing the vision that all this brings and escaping from the wastes of the moral law that otherwise, perhaps in well-meaning ways, try to shape life according to the good. And then seventh, that time is malleable. This is the mental fight that Blake talked about, the mental being, the imaginative. This is about the desire to build Jerusalem once again on earth, the spirited vitality that was known by our forebears. This is about using our moment now, the minute particulars of our own experience, to step into them and so create space, create time once more that connects with eternity.